Take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you, one another, and the whole world. Amen. I want to begin with our first lesson today, the one that Michael read for us. It's always a little challenging to preach on an Old Testament passage because they are so often a little bit of a much bigger story, and that is certainly the case today. This is a glimpse at a reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. Now, this Joseph, not to be confused with Jesus' earthly father, is Joseph, son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. So this Joseph is one of our earliest ancestors in faith. Jacob, Joseph's father, had 12 sons, and Joseph was undeniably his favorite. As such, Joseph was given a beautiful coat of many colors, and understandably, his brothers were jealous. Sibling rivalry was just as much a thing then as it is now. And it was not made any better by the fact that Jacob was a little self-absorbed, bratty even, a typical 17-year-old, and he lords the special favored child over his brothers. None of this goes well. His brothers take him to the outskirts of town, planning to kill him, but end up deciding to make some money and sell him into slavery in Egypt. Sorry. There we go. Dozens of chapters are devoted to Joseph's life story. It is a saga of ups and downs, a mixture of winning favor with the king and landing in jail for poor life choices, but ultimately, Joseph ends up doing quite well for himself in Egypt, landing a position in the royal court where he is instrumental in the very survival of the people in the midst of a devastating famine. It's a fascinating saga. Now, Joseph's brothers and families are suffering the effects of this famine. Hearing that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob sends his sons there to buy grain from the king's representatives and they arrive, not realizing that the king's second-hand man is their very own brother they had sold into slavery years and years ago. Joseph hides his identity and toys with them, sets up a plot to discover more about them, considers extracting revenge, and now, as fate would have it, his brothers have appeared once again before him, begging for their very lives, still unaware of his identity. Oh, how the tables have turned. And that's where we enter into the story today, just as Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. The translation we heard read say the brothers were dismayed. Others use what I imagine is a more accurate translation of terrified. What revenge will Joseph enact? A word from him and his brothers could have been thrown into jail or executed on the spot or put into slavery on their own. But Joseph chooses something potentially much, much harder. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. He does not repay evil with evil, but rather chooses to recognize God's grace in his own life and extends that grace to those who have hurt him. 
It was not a path without more drama and trouble, but he chose that path. Fast forward to Jesus in our gospel lesson this morning. This is a continuation of last week's gospel. Jesus is in the middle of teaching and preaching to those crowds that had gathered. I say to you that listen. Hmm. Even Jesus obviously had trouble keeping people's attention when he was preaching and uh, teaching. Remember that word listen because it makes a reappearance in next week's gospel. So what do the people who choose to listen to Jesus hear? Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Forgive. Expect nothing in return. Some tough, tough words. A dear colleague of mine gives a disclaimer before preaching on some lessons, and I think that this is a good one to do that for because it has been used as justification for abusers, and I want to say that that is categorically not okay. This scripture is not meant to say that Jesus wants us to be doormats. This scripture does not mean that it is okay for, to continue to be involved with someone who hurts you and harms you. The words, particularly the ones about turning the other cheek, can at first glance or even second or third glance seem to suggest that if we want to follow Jesus, we are expected to succumb to abuse and let people get away with bad behavior, that we're to ignore violence and condone suffering. Not so. In fact, quite the opposite. Let's go with that striking, turning the other cheek um, words for a moment. In Jesus' time, striking the cheek was the way a master disciplined a slave or a servant in public, the way he would assert his authority. Now, there was a proper way to do this. The slave would stand facing the master, and he would strike their right cheek with the back of his right hand. A backhand was not a blow to injure, as much as it was a blow to publicly insult, humiliate, and degrade. It was not administered ever to an equal, but to an inferior. Masters backhanded slaves, husbands their wives, parents their children, Romans the Jews. The whole point of the blow was to publicly force someone who was out of line, metaphorically back into place. So by turning the other cheek, the servant would make it impossible for the master to use the backhand again. The left cheek would now offer a perfect target for a blow with the right fist, but only equals fought with fists. And the last thing a master wanted to do would be to establish equality. Turning the other cheek is not an act of submission, but an act of defiance rendering the master incapable of asserting his dominance. By turning the other cheek then, the inferior is saying, I am a human being just like you. I refuse to be humiliated any longer. I am your equal. I am a child of God. I won't take it anymore. Jesus goes on to continue to paint a picture of a world where people lead in love. Not romantic love, but compassionate, merciful love. 
The kind of world where when faced with hate, evil, contempt, jealousy, we do the exact opposite of what the world expects from us. Instead of responding to hate with hate, abuse with abuse, violence with violence, we respond in love. Not emotional, romantic, touchy-feely love, but the kind of active agape love that looks another person in the eye and recognizes them as a fellow human being. Love that is work, doing good, blessing others, praying for all, that agape love that isn't concerned with what we are going to get in return, but rather what our love will change. A love that reflects the forgiving love shown to us by God. And it's not easy. It's not saying, I forgive you, and then going about as if there's no work to be done to bring reconciliation. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once preached a sermon about loving our enemies with these words. Why should we love our enemies? The answer is remarkably simple. Hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. Force begets force. Hate begets hate. Toughness begets toughness, and in all, it is a descending spiral, ultimately ending in destruction for all and everybody. Somebody must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe. You are that person, and you do that by love. End quote. We can be those people. We are those people, called to live as God lives. And it doesn't have to be this overwhelming, epic action. It's in little daily interactions of looking people in the eye, being curious about why someone is saying what they are saying, listening, taking a breath before responding, walking away from a fight, turning that other cheek, speaking your truth in love, praying for mercy. All of those words that Jesus spoke thousands of years ago to the crowds who were gathered speak deeply to us as well. We don't do this alone. We can't. We love and are merciful as God is merciful to us. And we do this to show the world what the kingdom of God looks like. In the name of the one who loves us and has given us life, amen.